Would you please take your Bible or take one from the pew in front of you and turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. That's our text for this morning, just as it was last Sunday morning. Mark 10, 45. I want to read it with you very simply and then pray that God would come and unfold it to us and drive it into our hearts and shape us by it. Mark 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we go to the gas station to have our car serviced by another. And they they clean it. They top up the fluids. They tune the engine. And they fix what's broken. And they service our car. And you have told us now that... You do not come to get serviced by us, but you come to service us, to clean us, to top up the fluids in our life, to tune our minds and our hearts, sing your praise, to fix what's broken. And I want to begin by acknowledging that there's no way I could preach nor these people listen in the Holy Spirit without your service to us this morning. We call this a worship service, and I sometimes think we get it all wrong. It is your service of us now. You are serving us with your word You are serving us by your spirit. You are serving us a banquet of truth and of life-changing insight into your character and your glory. And I pray that you would humble us not to serve you now, but to receive your service. We thank you, Jesus, for this truth, and I pray for your help, your service to unfold it. Amen. Let me review a little bit from last week. Last week we focused on the spectacular truth. It lies on the face of the text, but I think we just ride right over it. The spectacular truth that at Christmas, the Son of Man comes, and He comes with a purpose, and the purpose is not to be served. He does not want your service. He does not want your service. He does not want your service. The Son of Man came not to be served. And the reason that is so spectacularly important is because we saw prior to verse 45, verses 37 to 44, where James and John were saying, we want to be first and second in the kingdom, one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus says, you want that? Can you drink my cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they say, we can. And he says, you will. And they will die. 
If you want to sit with me in glory, you must suffer with me and die with me. And then the other disciples, the other ten, they got all excited and all upset and said, this is not right for them to be asking. And Jesus looks at them and says, you want to be great? Great people will be servants. In fact, if you want to be first, you must be the servant of all. And so leading up to verse 45, you have this tremendous expectation laid upon disciples. You shall die and you shall serve and you shall suffer. And frankly, if verse 45 doesn't come, that's not good news. You can't drink his cup without his help. You can't be baptized with the baptism of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, without his help. You can't serve the people in this room, let alone the enemies outside this room, without his help. And therefore, verse 45 comes in as the gospel enablement of the commands of verses 37 to 44. We are called upon to serve one another. We are called upon to be slaves to one another. And then he steps back and he says, but don't you dare think of that service as service to me. I don't need your help. I don't need your rescue. I don't need your support. I don't need your guidance. I don't need your tenderness. I am God. I have resources for you. You have no resources for me whatsoever. If there are any resources which which you serve one another, they come from me. And so the whole point of the Christian life is to learn how to serve others by being served by Jesus. That was last week. Let me try to put it in a sentence for you. Every time God commands you to do something, suppose you're reading the Bible. You read the Ten Commandments, say, or you read the Sermon on the Mount, full of commandments, or you read the book of James. Must be a hundred commandments in the book of James. Suppose you read the Bible and every time Jesus commands you to do something, what this text is saying is that you should hear him describing the way he intends to serve you. Let me say that again. I, I drew it out too long with parentheses. Every time the Bible commands you to do something, it is describing the way the Lord Jesus intends to serve you. You got that? Let me me say it another way. The path of obedience, the path of obedience is the place where Christ, our servant, meets us to carry our burdens and give us his power. Let me say it again now. Walk it out. I'll walk it out for you. Jesus says, go this way, John. And I step out onto the path of obedience. And what verse 45 in connection with this context is saying is the path of obedience is the place and it's the only place where I meet the full service of Christ for me. And he comes to sustain me. And to empower me and to enable me and protect me and guide me. So commandments in the Bible are descriptions of the place you meet your servant Jesus. That's what commandments are. Commandments are descriptions of the path on which you find your servant 
enabler and helper and guide and protector. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, ransomer and forgiver. I love the gospel. This is the gospel, folks. I love the gospel of Christianity. All the commands of the Lord are radical commands of what he intends to help us do. Now, there's an objection to this. It lies right on the face of it. We are called, both in the epistles and in the gospels, the servants of Jesus. I know that. And you know that. So you're sitting there saying, oh, but wait a minute, the Bible says we are servants of Jesus. So you're neglecting a part of the scriptures when you say we shouldn't serve Jesus. No, no, no. I'm asserting a part of the scriptures that we neglect because we're so familiar with the other. And now let's bring them together. When, for example, in John 13, 16, Jesus says to the same people, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So he is calling me and you his servants. Now, is that a contradiction to Mark 10, 45? The Son of Man did not come to be served. And yet I call you servants. What's going on here? There's a lesson here. It's a very simple lesson, and we all know this about language. The word servant has pieces in it, some of which are good to apply to the relationship with Jesus, and some of which are bad to apply to the relationship with Jesus. For example, if we say, ah, Lord and servant means he has a right to tell me what to do. I say, absolutely. And if that is what you mean, I am the servant of Jesus. You have every right in the world and universe to tell me everything I should do. And I have no claim to tell you what you should do at all. So you're not my servant in that sense. I'm your servant in that sense. But if you move over to the other piece of the picture of servanthood and say, Servants are people who meet the needs of their masters and masters plantations would go under if they didn't have lots of servant and slave labor to help them make a livelihood. In that sense, I am the servant not of Jesus. He's my servant. He keeps my plantation afloat. He keeps my enterprise going. He keeps my health. He protects me from my enemies. I never do any of that for Jesus and therefore I dare not think of serving him in that way. Does that make sense? So we're going to take the text as they stand. And when it says, I did not come to be served, we will say, aha, there is a way to serve Jesus that is deadly. You go to Acts 17.25 and you hear what it is. Acts 17.25, Paul is talking to these self-sufficient Athenians and he says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Now that is why we dare not think of ourselves as the servants of the Lord in the sense of meeting any needs that the Lord has. The Lord does not need us. The Lord commands us to live in the enjoyment of his glory and moves in to help us do it. And that's unique about Christianity. 
There's not another religion in the world that talks like this. When you go back, for example, to Isaiah 46, and the prophet is extolling the Lord. No, it's 64, I believe. Ah, maybe it's both. I can't remember. But he's, he's contrasting Yahweh, the God of Israel, with Baal and Nebo, the gods of the Babylonians. And he says, Baal and Nebo must be carried on carts. And then the next verse is, but I carry you. The, the key difference between Christianity and all other religions is that we have a servant God. I know it could be blasphemously spoken. And I hope you do not hear me as blaspheming because the giver gets the glory. The servant, the one who is infinitely resourceful, who humbles himself to the dirt of the cross to lift the whole church in glory as its servant is infinitely glorious in power and love. Though he is lowly. This is not blasphemy, folks. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. It's too good to be true, many people say. You can't negotiate with God, therefore. You have nothing to give him. If you were to presume to give him your money, $230,000. I didn't tell you that before you gave. $230,000 we need. This Sunday and next Sunday for budget. Another 70 for the building fund before the year is over or we go deep into the red. When you give today and next Sunday, and many of you are going to stretch to the breaking point, I believe. When you give, God does not need your money. Missionaries need your money. Staff and people in this city Need your money, not God. God calls you to participate in his serving of the missionaries. And if you don't do it, he'll do it another way. And leave us behind without the blessing. He is never trapped. He is never cornered. He is never saying, oh my, what shall I do? I have no more servants in the earth. Never, never. Does he feel that way? Faith is the opening of your heart to receive the service of the Lord. Becoming a Christian, now listen carefully because some of you need to hear this because you're not Christians yet. Becoming a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit begin to awaken your heart so that you recognize that you're... didn't see this in the first service. Look at this. Now, this is pathetic. But this is great. This is the Lord's doing here. This is the way we come to the Lord. Only much worse. This has not been serviced. And uh, if this plant now comes to the Lord to become a Christian, it only has one hope. Would you water me? Would you please water me? I'm going to die. And I'm almost dead. 
If you're not a Christian, you're in worse shape than this plant. And you can't help yourself. There's nothing you can do without the Lord. And He's come. He's here this morning. He's working. The Spirit is moving and water is flowing. The Spirit is flowing. And you are listening to me. It's no accident that you're here this morning. None at all. God brought you here this morning. Whatever circumstances it was, God brought you here. This word is for you. It's His appointment. There's some, some life to be bestowed. Receive it. Faith is a recognizing that our, our limbs are broken and our leaves are wilting and we are bound for destruction. And then it recognizes in Jesus the all-sufficient servant God who, as we'll see in a moment, ransoms us and serves us the rest of our lives and then embraces that, receives it, and you're a Christian. When you live on that. Let's go to this last phrase in the verse. Mark 10.45, this is what we did not focus on last Sunday. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life a ransom for many. Let's just focus on that. Give his life a ransom for many. First thing to notice is this. Do you see that it is intentional? He came to do this. I, I sometimes think that we picture Jesus as coming into the world and then he gets caught up in a kind of maelstrom of political activity and suddenly he finds himself on a cross. It's not the way it is. He came intentionally. You can see this right here. Look at. If you want to back up in the verses a little bit to verse 33 of Mark 10, they're going up to Jerusalem. They're all afraid and there's something in the air they don't quite understand. And Jesus says in verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered in to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. But we're going. And will deliver him to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and scourge and whip him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. He knew it. He was cooperating in his own execution. In fact, he was planning it. He came for it. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself took on the same nature that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who have been held in lifelong bondage by the fear of death. Hebrews 2.14 He did it on purpose. He planned it. you got to see that right off the bat. Or... The intentionality is gone and therefore the love is gone and you don't feel loved. And you ought to feel awesomely loved in this verse. He intentionally did it. Next question. Why is it called a ransom? Why is his giving of his life called a ransom? Greek, lutron. Used very regularly in ordinary Greek of that day for a payment made to liberate people from all different kinds of bondage, like prisoners of war, out of slavery, out of uh, debt. 
And so the word is a perfect word, means just what it says in English. It's a ransom. It's a giving over of something so that another thing could be released. And what is given over here is his life in death. And therefore, what's described is a substitution. Sometimes, sometimes people object to this idea of a substitution. Christ for us, he dies that we might live. And they point out here, for example, when it says a ransom for many, that the for doesn't have to be a, a substitutionary for. It might just be a benefit for, like he gave his life for the benefit of many. Nothing substitutionary about it. Leon Morris has a great paragraph on that. He says, even if we take the substitutionary meaning out of the word, the, the for, the preposition, we have not taken it out of the passage for the situation in view is one in which many are condemned. Their lives are forfeit. If Jesus gives his life a ransom for the many and thereby they are released from their condemnation, then a substitutionary transaction has taken place. Understand the individual words how you will. That's right. That's right. This is why, incidentally, parenthesis, why you non-Greek readers can read the Bible with tremendous insight and power. If you will read the Bible. If you will read the Bible and not let other people tell you what it has to mean. If you will take it phrase by phrase and word by word and ask about the relationships and let something a little later shed light back on this so that somebody who's telling you that this can't mean that and that shows you that's what this means. You see, you do read the Bible. You don't just take little pieces and say, Sir Scholar, what are your opinions? You don't need to do that. You can take the Bible and labor over it and read with power and life-transforming insight. There's a substitution going on here, folks. And it is the gospel. It is the powerful, glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus that he came to substitute himself. But why? Let's ask this question now. What's the bondage? What are we enslaved to? You remember... In uh, John 8, I think it was, where the Jews heard Jesus talking about slavery and the son will set you free. And they said, they said, we're Jews. We're the sons of Abraham and we've never been enslaved by anybody. And I think there are probably some people in this room who, if you were honest, would be saying inside right now, Wait, what is this slavery bondage stuff? I'm, I'm my own person. And this is America. And I'm not enslaved by anybody and I don't have any bondage. And that's, uh, that's, that's the lie of the devil. And it's the blindness of your own eyes. And here's the way Jesus diagnosed your condition in John 8.34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Which means that beneath our sinning is a sin nature. Beneath John, the old John Piper, before grace began a new work, beneath John Piper's sinning was a sea of sin. A nature called the old man or the flesh. And I was, I in my activity and my thinking and my feeling was in bondage to me. I, all I could do was give the, just the stuff that I was. And I was not godly. 
Something's got to happen there. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is what Jesus says about the consequence of that condition. Matthew 25, 46. These will go away into eternal punishment. Mark that phrase. Eternal punishment. This is Jesus talking. Jesus Christ, the loving, tender, child-holding, leper-healing, women-exalting, broken people-healing. Jesus spoke more of hell than anybody else in the New Testament and all the others put together. And he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is why Christmas is so important. My sin nature resulting in sinning apart from a redeeming, ransoming grace of God to rescue me out of this bondage is going to send me to what Jesus calls here eternal punishment. And that's just because my sins against a holy, infinitely worthy God are an unholy, infinitely Worthy sin of destruction. Infinitely worthy of destruction. And therefore my sentence to hell is a just sentence. And Jesus offer in this text to be a ransom for you and me is the best Christmas present you could ever be offered. We have no other hope. That's why... Over and over in the New Testament, it says, Jesus died for us. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 9, we were justified by his blood. Romans 5, 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 1 Peter 3, 24, Christ died for our sins, the just For the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Last question. Let's bring it right down to where we are. Who, who are the many? In verse 45. Are you in the many? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve And to give his life up in death as a ransom for many. Are you in the many? Turn with me as we draw to a close now, if you want to, to John 15, verse 13. And I want to let Jesus answer who the many are. And then you can ask, are you Among the many. Are your sins effectually covered? And are you ransomed? There are many people in hell today whose sins are not ransomed. There's no double jeopardy. Ransomed people do not suffer forever. The key question here is, was I ransomed? Here's what Jesus says in John 15:13. Greater love has no one than this 
that one laid down his life for his friends. Which is just an echo of John 10:16. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now here's the question. Are you the friend of Jesus this morning? Or are you alien from him? Are you resistant to him? Are you walking way over there while he's walking way over there? Are his values there and your values there? And there's no friendship. The twain cannot walk together. They've never made an appointment. Are you the friend of Jesus this morning? What does that mean? Keep reading. Verse 14 in John 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That is not the way you become a friend. That is what friends do. We're back where we started, remember? The Son of Man did not come to be served. You don't, you don't, you don't slave your way into the friendship of Jesus. You don't work your way into the friendship of Jesus. Friendship is a thing that is born out of, out of what? Out of what? Let's keep reading. Look. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That's the way you can tell if you've become a friend of mine. No longer do I call you slaves. Does that sound familiar? No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends. Why? How? What, what, what's happened here? For all the things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you. How do you become a friend? Here's the essence of it. You look at the son of God as he's revealed in the word and you see him working and you hear him speaking. And when you hear him speaking, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, your heart opens and you see, that's God speaking. That's the revelation of the glory of God coming out of his mouth. And when he acts in healing power and in love and in giving himself on the cross, and you're watching him by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, your heart is open to say, that is a revelation of all that God meant to reveal to the disciples. That's what's going on in verse 15 here. You are my friends because I have taken the Father's life, the Father's word, the Father's plan, the Father's heart, and I have laid it open before you. And he has given you to me and I have chosen you and you have seen the glory of the Father and it has become to you irresistibly attractive and you have been weaned away from all the other glories of the world and you have become satisfied in all that I am for you. And if that hasn't happened, you're not a Christian. We have so defined conversion as a mechanical, natural, non-supernatural, human-controllable thing that I fear not many are on the way that leads to life. And I want you to go. 
The ransomed are people who are friends of Jesus. And the friendship with Jesus is begotten by a revelation of the glory of the Lord. It's described in many places in the New Testament. Another one is 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where it says that the Lord who said, let there be light, has spoken into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's got to happen in order for a person to be a Christian. The light of the glory and the beauty and the worth of God as our Father and our servant, Redeemer, has to dawn into our dark hearts and banish the darkness and wean us from sin and enslave us to Jesus. As our friend. The best Christmas present you could ever receive today would be the beholding of God as irresistibly worthy of your heart and your life, your mind, your strength. Let's pray. Father, I plead with you that the supernatural work of God, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit opening hearts, the supernatural work of the Spirit, like Jesus said to Peter when he confessed him to Christ, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. I pray, Father, that you would reveal your glory, your worth, your beauty to people who have so little spiritual life, if any, in this room. Oh, Lord God. Let none pass through this glorious holiday without becoming friends with Jesus. I'm going to stay here at the front for a few minutes afterwards. We'll have some other prayer teams here. If any of you wants to pray about this, talk about this, or seek any help, we'd love to talk. Let's stand for the benediction. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. A great, sweet Advent Christmas peace. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.